This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Scott. Hi, I'm Paul. We're going to talk about The City and the Stars by Arthur C. Clarke, first published in 1956. Um, We three met not very long ago uh, to talk about a book um, that I'm currently show-noting, and uh, I had a reaction to that book that was surprising to me, The Broken Sword by Poole Anderson. And then, uh, I guess a couple weeks later, we did this book. Is it mm-hmm. Only a couple weeks ago, seems seems like uh, a month or so. Yeah, a month. Or so okay. And mm-hmm. I, I, I was just thinking about, oh yeah, we're, we're gonna have Scott on again, and Paul and Jesse, and that's the exact same group. And then I thought, hey, I wonder what these guys will think. Jesse will think of this book. Okay, should I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I imagine that you would have liked it. Because um, it's idea-filled. And Paul? I agree with Scott that I thought that you would really enjoy this because it's it's early science fiction, big ideas, explorations of societies, not, not so much an interior life of a character, but so much as just tons and tons of imagination and the stuff that I associate you reading science fiction for correctly or incorrectly. You guys have successfully modeled my brain <laughs> because I was thinking about this and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm really predictable. Cause uh, mm-hmm. honestly, I'm like trying to follow the plot later on in the book. I, I don't even care. I don't care what's mm-hmm. going on because I'm so entranced by the first, I don't know, third of the book where he just wanders around the city. It's mm-hmm. just idea after idea after idea after idea. And, I mean, the, the main character, he, I don't know, he's like a neutered human. Uh, and everyone else is even more neutered. And uh, that's just really interesting. I don't care about his character at all. I just care about, like, wow, this weird society where there's no conflict except for this one character, the jester, and uh, how art works and how... Uh, you know, they have fears blocked into them and, and mm. you know, the whole universe is cut off from them. Like, just it's just ideas. And then, yeah, there's some stuff later. Like, I just finished the book a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I can barely tell you what it's about, the, the back of the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, that's yeah, said, it's kind of like Jesse um, modeled. I don't know, reminiscent of like Olaf Stapleton. Oh, uh, yeah, this totally. Book. I I didn't. Yeah, read, so, I hadn't read Olaf Stapleton the first time I read this book, but yeah, hundred percent, Scott, you got it exactly right. It's basically his version of an Olaf Stapleton. Right, right. Yeah, this so is plot, his last. Is this is his secret. last and first men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good point. Yeah. Uh, um, before before we get uh, too into it, I just had a quick question about the the book itself. Mm-hmm. Now, my understanding, and and correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the first things that Arthur C. Clarke wrote was Against the Fall of Night. Mm -hmm. And then this is a complete rewrite of that story. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. So he he just basically um, said, boy, I'm still interested in this. I'm going to rewrite it completely now that I know what I'm doing. Or or was – but the the, I seem to remember – 
seeing um, Against the Fall of Night is available. You know, it, it was in print for a long time as well. So mm-hmm. are they both distinctively different enough that they're selling both still? And the, the first one is also, you know, popular in a way. Yeah, it's interesting. Yes. You guys know that? Okay, go ahead. Yes, it's, it, so so much so that uh, they got Gregory Benford, the science fiction writer, to write a sequel to not this one, but to Against the Fall of Night. So yes, they're definitely they're. How can I put they're they're. I mean, it's it's not so much as a rewrite as a rethinking of the original book, but they both can and do stand on their own. They're almost like different Bach fugues where they're using some of the same ideas and same tricks, but they come out to be completely different musical pieces. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, I wish I had had time to read that first one. Cause I don't think I've ever read that first one. No, me neither. Um, but I think I will, because I'm just interested, you know, you know, simply from a writing perspective, why, why did he feel like he, he wanted to do this? And it might be not from a writing perspective. It might be from an idea perspective where, He's like, oh, I have a lot more now to uh, contribute to this idea. I think that's that's more more of it, yeah. And I've got some stuff here. There's a, a nice piece on the British Interplanetary Society's website about this book. Um, of course, that dude is, uh, or that web, that group is uh, associated with Clark, so that kind of makes sense. Um, mm. So this is uh, from an article from 2013 called. From the Biss Archives Against the Fall of Night. Some novels are a long time in coming, especially first novels. This was certainly true of the story, which eventually became The City and the Stars. The novel's gestation period can be traced back to the 1930s and even earlier when Arthur C. Sorry, when Arthur was living in a flat in Gray's Inn Road near Holborn Tube Station in London, as Neil McClear relates in this definitive biography of Clark. I still know exactly how it all began, Clark said later in an introduction to the work. The opening scene flashed mysteriously into my mind and was pinned down on paper around 1935. It was an isolated incident, unrelated to any plot I had been trying to develop. The work became against the fall of night, from its beginnings at the Clark family farm to the time an early version of it appeared in Startling Stories in November 1948. Uh, and that's the version I just put up uh, on the PDF page. Um, Mm -hmm. This work went through as many as six versions, its word count climbing over time, but that was not the end of it. Clark couldn't let it go, and it was eventually published as a novel by Gnome Press in 1953. Next, Clark undertook a major revision, and The City and the Stars was published in 1956. Twenty years had passed since he had visualized the opening scene, and some critics believe that the marathon was worth it. Mm. Um, And then... He there's a lot more paragraphs about this, but um, nice, yeah, I like that. I want to point out that the Wikipedia entry also has a, an interesting insight here um, in the second paragraph. Several years later, Clark revised his novel extensively and renamed it *The City and the Stars*. The new version was intended to showcase what he had learned about writing and "quote unquote" information processing. I'm quoting that. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not, and I'm like, what the hell is information processing? But mm-hmm. when I looked up, well, there's the, some of that in here. <laughs> yeah. I, when I looked it up, it, it, you can see it, right? So yeah. here's, here's the following, uh, rest of the paragraph. The major differences are in the individual scenes and the details of his contrasting civilizations of diaspora and lists against the fall of night remained popular enough to stay in print after the city and the stars had been published. 
In introductions to it, Clark had told the anecdote of a psychiatrist and a patient who admitted that they had discussed it one day in therapy without realizing mm -hmm. at the time that they ha had read one novel and the other. So one yeah, somebody somebody on Twitter had mentioned that, and I, I didn't know that, and my uh, ebook does not have that. I think that that's actually a, a really cool anecdote, and that's why he puts it cool. in there because yeah. they're they're obviously different enough. Um, some of the differences are like I was reading, maybe it was on Goodreads or somewhere that the the robot that has the mental block um, mm -hmm. is solved in two different ways. So oh. in the city and the stars, um, the the central computer uses its um, uh, hyper awesome processors or whatever to basically fMRI the robot, right? And says, mm -hmm. "What do you think about uh, the invaders? What do you think about them? What, uh, tell us about them, right?" And then mm. uh, when these great creatures return. Um, how will they feel to you, right? And then it's modeling that, and then it's it it reconstructs it so that it has that breakthrough. It's like a robot psychology sort of thing, right? Whereas in the original, the City and the Stars, um, not no, sorry, Against the Fall of Night, apparently the co co computer uses um, just makes an exact double of the robot, constructs it without the block. And, and you say, oh, okay, that's information processing difference, right? Yeah, yeah. And Scott, you, is this something you know about? Information um, processing? I, I, <laughs> no more than other people. You know, okay. the, the stuff that I deal with programming, I wouldn't call, you know, artificially intelligent. Um, but what's cool as you're reading that, um, it uh, you can clearly see so much in, in this book, and including that, you know, it reminds me of how. Mm -hmm. You know, 1968, um, which was, uh, what, quite 20 rewrite. years later? That's also a years. rewrite, right? Um, <clears throat> a bunch of stories, especially the Sentinel. Yeah, he wrote the Sentinel, right. Yeah, and then just brought in other things. Mm -hmm. um, that's right. That's right. So the the idea, you know, yeah, th again, there's just so much in here that you can see in Clark's other stuff. So clearly he was, uh, these ideas are kind of what drove his whole career. Yeah, um, and uh, you can uh, seeing two thousand one as well as like holy Olaf Stapleton again, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. Paul. Yeah. Let's hear from you. I haven't. Uh, you're, you're you're rather quiet today. Um. Well, I I do I do think that there's definitely echoes of this that can go forward into some of Clark's other works, as you said, two thousand one. The whole idea of computers and intelligences that are not human basically going insane because because of faults in how they're constructed or how they were arranged. In other words, the mad mind of this novel is a predecessor to Hal and how mm. do you deal with how do how do you deal with how do you deal with non human insanity in in I mean this novel basically they're going to have it's force foreshadowed they're going to have a battle at the end of eternity in 2001, 2010, how basically gets cured showing an evolution and a change in Clark's point of view about that. Uh, as far as the differences between these two novels, I, I do think that in the intervening years, Clark thought a little bit more about computers and 
artificial intelligence and how it might work. And that's why you get the two very different solutions. I mean, if you think about it, a duplication of the robot would just duplicate the block. So that doesn't really work as well as just basically using prisoner game theory yeah. to get to a uh, get to a point where the block is circumvented that feels like a better solution than the original and it fits yeah, it fits yeah. more with the idea that like one of the really cool things like i'd spend i could just spend hours thinking about that uh, this point is that they're actually not even really human at all none of the people in the city right because they they never have a childhood body they never mm. are actually children they have quote-unquote parents but they're they they're bo- they're basically biomanufactured like the the robots in Westworld, right? Yeah, yeah, not really involved. They're just like, hey, you know, welcome. We'll see you later. Yeah, uh, I'm your parent. I'll, <laughs> Have a good I'll see you every third Thursday. <laughs> Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> That's right. It's very um, distancing um, and yeah. emu- emotionally muted, and that's <laughs> just like one tiny little thing that's mentioned and and not really dwelt upon but um it feels like that could be a whole book for someone else right yeah and it sort of did become a big thing later um when after he visited the other city mm-hmm. uh Liss, lice yeah Liss. yeah Liss. yeah um he did state that the the lack of love in diaspar um, sort of became a motivation for him moving forward and trying to get the two groups together. Yep. Yeah. Right. So it did. It was a little thing that became, you know, like a butterfly effect thing. It became a big thing. Yeah. Now, um, one of one of the um, other factoids that uh, is interesting, I heard about this book, read about somewhere, is um, that he tried to sell it to John W. Campbell at Astounding, um, and <laughs> to me. Uh, that all the list stuff with the telepathy, that's him. Oh yeah, that's Campbell. Campbell, <laughs> he's trying to sell to the market of Campbell, and Campbell's mm. still not buying it. No, you got to have telepathy right from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I won't take this. Oh shoot! <laughs> and yeah. uh, of course, that, did he end up buying it? I, I'm, no, he I'm didn't. Sorry, I don't it went remember. to Starling okay. Stories, which okay. is mm. uh, you know was down market from you know the pinnacle, which was astounding. Mm. And uh, I gotta, I gotta think that, <laughs> you know, the fact that they're everybody's tele- telepathic doesn't improve the story a lot to me. Um, I, I don't know if I told this story before, but I, I, I told it to my student the other day. <clears throat> um, when I get a new student, um, I sort of have to quickly assess their level, you know. And uh, see what what words they know and what words they don't. It, ta- it takes about fifteen minutes, right? And then I, after a certain point, I get out a, a poem by Edgar Allan Poe or something, mm-hmm. and then um, I suddenly become telepathic. And this is what I tell the student, right? This is the only time, any other time, in our lives when you and I interact, like when you're talking about, uh, you know, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you're talking about the latest Thor movie you've seen. I'm not telepathic. I have no idea what's going on in your, in your head. But as soon as we sit down and read this poem together, I know exactly what's going on in your head. Because I've read this poem before, and I know your level. 
uh, you know, I know what words you know and what words you don't. And mm. and it's 100% true. Like, we can go through the whole thing, and I will know which words they don't know and which words they do, and I will know when they understand what the sentence means and when they don't. But as soon as we go off script uh, to some other topic, I, I have no idea what's going on. And that's the only kind of telepathy I think makes any kind of sense. When you, your computer, like when the computer uh, has so much information that it can predict your your behavior as well as you can, or like when you guys successfully modeled my brain and saying Jesse Jesse's gonna love this story, even though technically Arthur C. Clarke isn't a beautiful writer. I mean, he's okay, he's he's good, but he isn't mm-hmm. beautiful. You knew that Jesse's gonna like this because he you've managed to model his brain, right? Mm. Um, I guess so, yeah. And so all that all that tele- telepathy stuff and the obsession with it that Campbell goes after, and I think is kind of wasted in this book a little. Like it doesn't really pay off, I don't think, very well. I I think that the telepathy is there to help show a balance between the world of Diaspora and the world of Lys. Because if you if the if the Lysians did not have telepathy, if they were just a simply Dionysic agrarian society that wouldn't feel that they were anywhere near on the level with Diaspora. And that would basically have give a very different cast of the book. You'd basically have civilization versus non-civilization or Mm -hmm. barbarism. Whereas by giving, giving the Lysians telepathic powers, you basically rise them up to be an equal but different kind of civil descendant civilization mm. than the diasporans. So they had to have something. Yeah, I agree. Well, and, 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 a, yeah. and without that, you, you're left with the whole problem of, I mean, there's not a lot of conflict in this book per se, but <laughs> that's true. Another, Clark, another, uh, another Clarkism, right? Right. Mm. But, but, but even without the threat of that, the, that's averted of the, of him being telepathically overridden, once once Alvin gets to the Lysians, there's really nothing to push him then, other than that telepathic threat. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the whole whole yeah, story they definitely just need something. Yeah, that's yeah. an excellent point, Paul. Um, yeah, it's almost like uh, biological versus technological, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the biological evolved the telepathy. You know, while the the other uh, diaspora is um, reliant on technology, uh, Apollonian you know? versus Dionysian. Mm, yeah, right, good. right, good, exactly. The, That's the great. Other, the other work I was thinking of, and the two of you will both roll your eyes when I, as I was listening <laughs> to this, is is basically is Zardoz. I have not seen Zardoz. Um, all I know is it's Sean Connery in a diaper. So. <laughs> I'm afraid Connery, you, I'm lost on that. What is Zardoz? I have no idea what that is. Zardoz is a 1970s science fiction movie directed by John Borman and starring Sean Connery. It's a post-apocalyptic society where you have a small amount of elites living behind a force field and the rest of the world has gone to wildness, desertification, and barbarism. Zard, the main character of Zagaz is Zed, who is our Sean Connery, who runs around being being a being a brute barbarian and 
by degrees he's he winds up getting inside of this technological utopia and eventually destroying it. Hmm. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's got some. It's it's got some weird WTF moments. Okay, hmm. not, uh, not some. It's the movie. It's just one <laughs> long WTF moment oh after another. But there are, there are plenty of things that made me think of Zardas. For example, hmm. in this novel, everybody just keeps getting reborn over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for the first couple decades of their life, they don't remember who they are, but then they remember all their past lives that they haven't edited out and they basically have that continuity of millennia. In Zardas, the the tech in the technological utopia, no one can truly die. If you die, the matrix the computer matrix that controls everything just basically rebuilds you from hmm. scratch. It takes time and then so they have a continuity of hundreds of years and have they're basically sick of immortality in Zardoz and basically the whole point of Zardoz is to show the futility of immortality which in some ways is reflected here as totally. as as they talk about yeah just they they live too long in Diaspora and not long enough in the outside world so and that mm-hmm. editing interesting. Of, editing of the memories and, right Mm-hmm. So you can go in and you say, yep, yep, I don't like this part. <laughs> that part where I was a jerk, I'm taking that out. <laughs> wow, that is, yeah, when you say that, um, something that pops into my mind are my dim memories of Logan's Run. I was um, totally thinking of Logan's Run yeah. as well. And but it's, hey, this it's is sort an of an option. You know, these, exactly. yeah, these are not uh, immortal people, right? They're, they're actually being killed when they hit a certain age, if well, I remember. Yeah, yeah, they only live to 21 in the book, 30 in the movie. Whereas this, yeah. uh, this is, um, uh, you know, that is a, it's got a central computer, and everybody is under thirty, right? So it's it's, a, it's sort of like a society of the youth, and nobody gets to have any sort of wisdom, right? Whereas in this book, it's actually the reverse. It's it's a gerontocracy, right? Everybody's old, thousands of years old, thousands and thousands of years old, except for the main character, who is. Kind of like us, just, right? Just to do yeah, that, and the, right? th- that was an interesting aspect of it. So the main character is not that he's new, right? right. Which um, it seems like the, the if I remember right, the central computer did that on purpose and does that sometimes on mm-hmm. purpose, fourteen times because it it uh, kind of perturbs the system or something like that. It's yeah. like everybody's really static, so you've got to throw in this piece of random. Yeah, and and uh, uh, you know it is very. I mean, Logan's runs obviously after this, uh, but mm-hmm. it totally feels like. Um, I mean, th- it's in the exact same. Let's posit a future in which the global a global catastrophe has happened, right? Um, sort of environmental destruction, and people wall themselves off and have sort of a, uh, a forbidden zone outside, right? And yeah, yeah. the end That's of Logan's run is yeah. terrible, obviously. Um, it has some good aspects, but I totally don't remember it to remind me what the ending. <laughs> oh, yeah, some stupid robot that goes crazy. I mean, there's some good aspects. Wait a minute, there's it, a robot that goes crazy in this one too. I know. Oh, you talk about box. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's some major problems with it. With the back half of Logan's <laughs> run, but uh-huh. it, I think I think it's just because this is this world is so interesting and, um. In the same way that uh, this perfect day, you were on that show, Paul, right? No, I was not. Oh, 
Um, this Perfect Day, um, great, great book. Very under underrepresented. Um, is set in, if you guys remember, there's a book um, called The Giver. You know that yeah. book? Yeah, that one I know. Okay. Yeah, that, that's reminiscent of this too in a yeah, way. Yeah, it is. Yeah, go ahead. Um, mm-hmm. So it is. In the uh, in the giver, everybody uh, is sort of emotionally stunted, except for uh, a few people who sort of take on the pain of the community and um, and they sort of have to you know wash old people and stuff like that, right? Um, in this perfect day. Um, everybody in in the same way, you know. There's one mention of a line in here about how uh, Alvin has uh, a ge- his genitals uh, in his undercarriage are like I don't know tucked away or something, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and they have no body hair except for on the top of their head. It's like that's weird. Well, in this perfect day, it's the same thing. Everybody is there. Everybody's an adult, but they're sort of um, neutered sexually, um, so that it's they have their their sex organs but they they're emotionally neutered by everybody takes drugs all day in a sort of a brave new world sort of way but those drugs regulate emotion so that every you, you sort of have a flat affect and um it's got a great little uh rhyme that goes marks would uh way give us this perfect day way would marks Oh, and Christ um, did this sacrifice. I'm trying to remember how it goes exactly. Hmm. So it's it, it it's basically um, oh yeah, way Christ Marks and Wood made us humble, made us good. So way is some philosopher between us and whenever their world started, right? Christ, we know him. Marx, we know him. Um, Wood, maybe not. Um, and one of the other ones that shows up, it's uh, in like that. It's sort of the same effect. Is um, in uh, Brave New World, they have Ford, R Ford. Remember mm-hmm. how they, they always talk about R Ford, and it, it's like sort of the turning society into a, a giant factory. Mm-hmm. Um, so these kind of books where you've got a a dystopia uh, that's really a uh, utopia or a utopia that's really a dystopia. I mean, this is sort of every time. Here, that's exactly what we've got. We've got a utopia that is so perfect that there's nothing wrong with it. There's no conflict. <laughs> um, and yet, well, like if, if we were there, uh, I don't think we'd be happy somehow. But right, right. Well, isn't that happen. isn't that the truth about utopias? Right. Whenever you think you've got it, there's always something that you, you'll never hit it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I need to change that. Paul, Paul, um, did you notice the RPG elements the right at the start of the book? Yes, I loved that. Wasn't the that whole great? First, I could have well, done a whole book on that. I think they did. It's called Dream Park, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like let's have a virtual reality. We all get together and we go having. Going and and he even breaks the he he breaks the railroad in RPG terms. If a GM has set up a scenario where you can only go one way, and mm. if you go off that, then things fall apart. That's called railroading. Railroading is generally considered to be a bad thing in RPG right, terms. Right. You're supposed to give characters the ability to go and do what they want to an extent, and 
So, and, and this whole adventure is clearly a railroad and Alvin breaks the railroad. And so break the game stops. So it, it the game can't handle Alvin wanting to go off of the track. So that's really, and the players don't like it either though. Right. Everyone no, else because they had, because they along. ended. Yeah. Because they ended because it broke the game. So it's like Alvin ruined their little RPG session, which I thought was hilarious. Mm-hmm. They called them the sagas. And then if you start thinking about how this novel works, it's ex- it's essentially a role playing after that, right? When he he everyone else grows up and they stop playing the sagas, he keeps playing his saga, right? Which is his adventure outside the city uh, to the stars and you know talking to the Medusa polyp thing, whatever that is. Was that supposed to be like uh, Cthulhu or something? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, <clears throat> yeah. It, there were there were there was a number of sort of Lovecraftian elements, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. And I, I like what you just said about, um, you know, the how whole thing is in a way sort of him playing that game. Or, yeah, doing his own Because in near, near the end, I highlighted it, it actually says, we have lived too long out of contact with reality. Mm-hmm. And now the time has come to rebuild our lives. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so in a way, he's looking at it, you know, as as if they were permanently in some type of a game that... Um, he's trying to break them up now. Yeah, he's he's definitely trying to not just spoil the, the one sa- saga that he's playing with his friends. Um, he's he's trying to be the world shaker to overturn the system, right? And the fourteen yeah. the fourteen uh, other characters who who go outside the city and discover list and then get seduced by it um, are, are all the failed uh, corpses of. I mean, it's a very soft sort of horror, but it's... Yeah, it's interesting that, that Liss doesn't want any contact with Diaspora. You know, they're accepting the people that are coming mm. from there mm. and then trying to keep them from going back. I've, I'd forgotten but, the ending of the book, so I, 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 yeah. I didn't remember. But I was totally thinking about, like, um, the hermit kingdoms of uh, Korea and China, right? So they, they just say, no, we're not doing this... Uh, global expansion thing anymore. You know the treasure ships are coming back. We're we're done. We're we're locking the borders. We're sealing the ports. Um, you know we'll have m- very minor trade at the ports once a year, right? And that's it. And then what happens is you know you wait 500 years and these weird Europeans come in and start claiming parts of your territory and forcing trade upon you. So mm-hmm. I I thought that there's going to be some sort of <laughs> I'd forgotten the ending. I thought there was going to be some sort of outside force, the thing that they're really kind of in fa- afraid of that turns out to be fake, right? So yeah, yeah, we're 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 rooting for him, but there's there's really no um, reason for him to be doing any of the stuff he does, other than he's sort of pre-programmed, which is awesome because how can he be pre-programmed? He's the only one who isn't pre-programmed right 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 and literally programmed by the computer he's the only one who doesn't have you know just a reinstatement of his own even even the gestures are you know they have thousands of years old memory yeah i was a little disappointed in the just in the gesture i think it's meant as a foreshadowing of what alvin will do to the society but the gestures seem relatively ineffectual i mean they talk about them oh yeah disrupting the tubes for a little bit and all this stuff which makes me think of uh mm-hmm. the harlequin from the See, harlequin we're telling oh, yeah, I, I totally knew you were gonna say that <laughs> so, so the tiktok man by, <laughs> I thought the same by harlan thing. ellison yes, I did. But, 
but he's not even as effective as all that. He's kind of an impotent gesture. Yeah, it's almost as if he's uh, part of the program. Well, he yeah, is, right? He is part of the program. It's like, yeah, so, so these things are planned, you know, they're still on the railroad. <laughs> That's right. What he's doing is still part of the railroad. I, I would totally read another novel set in, you know, like just another reversion of this, except from a robot's point of view. Because the robots are ubiquitous throughout the, the city, right? But nobody, even the author, barely talks about them. Um, we're told that, yeah, they're running things. They've got their whole undercity. They've got these mental blocks in the same way that the humans do. Um, and they're, you know, out patrolling the outer corridors looking for things to maintain and places to dust. But uh, do they have their own system? Do they have their own system of uh, replacing and constructing robots and how they program them in? I mean, this is the sort of thing that uh, sitting in the background while, while um, I don't know, what's, uh, what's the main character's name again? Alvin. 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 While Alvin is uh, exploring the depths of the sea, I mean, uh, exploring the depths of the city, right? Just wandering corridors. I'm thinking about those robots and what they're doing because they're they're intelligent machines, right? They mm -hmm. most of them they don't have conversations with you, but that's honestly how the humans are too, right? They're intelligent machines wandering the corridors, looking at art, um, and just the whole system of how the I thought it's like in in other hands this is in the hands outside of Arthur C. Clarke's um, the the description of how art is chosen and how it is um, decided to be archived permanently is it would be a criticism like a I don't know some sort of satire on our way of choosing art how <laughs> things go but no he's just he's just postulating oh well here's a way and. Seems perfectly reasonable. But then I, I start wondering what those pieces of art look like. And the only one really described, uh, the only one that Alvin likes, is um, so, some sort of um, harmonic sun or something that flashes deeper, brighter. And I was like, well, that's a weird piece. Like, what? how can you have a kind of art without, without some sort of um, conflict <laughs> central to it, right? I, I don't know what it would look like. Is it just everybody's drawing flowers, or <laughs> yeah, it's still life for everyone, right? Yeah, yeah. From a from an engineer standpoint, too, uh, some of what Arthur C. Clarke does, you know, with the robots and the machines, um, was fascinating. Um, there was a thing that I highlighted about, um, I'll just read it. It just mm -hmm. says for centuries, the energy of matter had run the world until it too had been superseded. And with each change, the old machines were forgotten and the new ones took their place. Very slowly, over thousands of years, the ideal of the perfect machine was approached. That ideal, which had once been a dream, then a distant prospect, and at last reality. No machine may contain any moving parts. Here was the ultimate expression of that ideal. Mm, it's Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, isn't that, isn't that something? The phone yeah. will have no buttons. Soon <laughs> it will be just right. an oval egg that you keep in a drawer at home and don't look at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. You know, that's the kind of stuff I work with all the time. And, you know, uh, how amazing would it be if there were no moving parts? You know, the failure rate would be 
much, 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 much lower. Mm-hmm. Except for they rebel against you, and then that's that's the horrible thing. Uh, the I think that's in the universe as well by um, Heinlein, where he's got that generation starship, right? Yeah. And the yeah. controls in the in the cockpit or the pilot, uh, I don't know, the bridge of the ship. Um, there's no like switches and levers. It's all optical fiber, and if you want to, you know, change something, you just run your hand over it and block the light. So yeah. there's, there's no mechanical breakdown possible. Yeah, and we're doing that now in control systems all Damn. the time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, putting yourself out of work. No repair necessary. <laughs> now, yeah. now the laws of thermodynamics say that everything breaks down over time. Agreed. Everything. It's true. Everything, yeah. But it which, sure which, slows which, things down. It, which made me, which, when I was li- listening to this book and thinking about, oh, yeah, I think perfection and nothing ever breaks and i'm thinking that's not true everything eventually breaks no that's matter what the how robots are for right right i mean yeah the, the, it does it does say here that the old machines were forgotten and new ones took their place so so, so there's a there had to be a mechanism of by which it, everything was being maintained there's a scene um just a random sort of little mini scene i i think i don't think it's particularly important but he's walking the outer corridors he runs into the jester or something and and he says, look at this mural, right? And he just picks at it, and one of the tiles comes loose. And then he says, now the robots have something to do. He's got to come sweep this up, right? Yeah, so sure. they are living in the bones of uh, old Rome, right? Uh, 2,000 years later, or the equivalent billion years later, right? Um, and I love that there's a tomb there in the city, and they don't know what the word tomb means. <laughs> <laughs> Because no nobody dies, right? It's just that's yeah. not a thing anymore. What are you talking about? It's good uh, stuff. I, I and think we haven't even we haven't even talked about the great ones yet. Yeah. Well. Oh yeah, and that whole fake and that whole fake out, which is I think Jesse was referring to that when we was talking about the Lovecraftian elements. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. The old True. ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The great race of Yith or whatever. Uh-huh. Um. It do, It definitely has a, a. It is a fake out in a certain sense. But it's one that they faked out on themselves, right? The way we we get the final uh, spin on what how the city was constructed, and and by the way, uh, a scene at the end there, uh, I'd be very curious to know if that was in the original, against the fall of night, um, where is it? It's not Alvin. It's one of the other dudes. <laughs> one of the other dudes who I don't care about because they're just characters and they're not the ideas. Near the end, one of the other dudes. Uh, experiences visiting the city of Diaspar uh, from a billion years in the past and meets the guy whose tomb um, uh, is in the city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what's that guy's name? Anybody? No. Uh, is it is it Vanamond? No. No, that's no, that's, that's Vanamond. Uh, yeah. Anyways, he's got a two-part name, and he says okay. he says. Um, uh, yes, you can't be hurt here. This is all a dream. Um, and then I take away the blocks that uh, you have, and you are free now. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, I know who you're talking about now. Yep, go ahead. What's the name of that uh, the tomb guy? Um, I can't remember the name of the tomb guy. I just realized, you know, I know exactly what scene you're talking about. Well, it's very near the end. Anyways. Yeah. And uh, the important part is that's the exact same thing that happened to the robot. Right? Mm, Right. Uh, And and so what's the difference between the humans and the robots? 
one has biological organs that have been edited uh, to, I don't know, be less disgusting or something, less uh-huh. hairy. And the other one has uh, metal, I guess. And that's about the only difference. Hmm. I think that's yeah. pretty cool. Rivets and trees. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, in uh, if you uh, did you guys watch... Uh, uh, I, I would. We, we were going to have Marissa on, but she unfortunately was not available. She wanted to do a show on the Westworld uh, HBO show. Oh wow! I I have just started rewatching. At, I haven't seen uh, it. Watching yet, the series. I mean, I just got really good, Scott. It just the discs from Netflix, and I watched the first two episodes last mm-hmm. night. Of uh, you, but you saw the first season of Westworld, right? I saw the first episode of Westworld when <laughs> oh. I obtained it by. Uh, by a nefarious means. <laughs> right and proper means, you mean? In any so, so case, anyways, yeah. it's, it, it, what's so cool about that show is it's very thoughtful and philosophical. And some of the characters are, well, at least, I, I've seen the whole first season. I'm pretty sure at least some of the characters are entirely human. Um, a lot of the other characters are robots. Um, and some of them are biological robots in the same way that... Uh, they are in Blade Runner, right? Uh, or very similar. Uh, when they bleed, they bleed, but it's hard to tell whether they're human or not without giving them a test or resetting their programming or whatever it is. Um, but at least one of the characters in the original, or in the first season of Westworld, is a uh, robot of the older model. So they look human on the outside, but they've got like the gears and you know metal casings and I don't know nuts and bolts inside, um, and What's the difference between these three kinds of robots? You've got the humans, who basically are emotionless robots that have programming that makes them want to go out and kill things, which is the visitors to Westworld, right? You've got the the old robots that were there at the beginning of the amusement park, and then you've got the the sort of the latest model robots that are essentially human, but were never physically born from a mother they were manufactured in the lab and they're worth repairing when they get damaged uh they ha- they can have their memories edited and essentially it's like diaspar is where everybody ended up moving into not just going to a theme park they live there now and now they don't even worry about whether you're a guest or uh, what they call it yeah the guests and and uh, staff right the staff are the ones like it's Mickey Mouse running over there and you shoot Mickey. <laughs> now you are Mickey, <laughs> right? And that's the difference. Is Diaspar is uh, West Westworld's future by a billion years or whatever, right? Where everybody huh. is just a, a a biological robot with editable memories. It's really this is a really fantastic book and you can see why he wants to come back to it and and think about it and spend more time with it. Yeah, there's definitely a heck of a lot of thinking going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of uh, consideration. Yeah, I, I like the names too. Diaspar, mm-hmm. and Liss. I, I'm. They don't really mean anything, right? Diaspora, I guess. But there isn't much of a diaspora there, is there? Um, I was going to mm-hmm. ask this question because this is a you know uh, the time we're living in in 2017. Everybody's worried about identity politics, right? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, you know, I saw somebody tweet uh, uh, somebody I follow, and he got really mad. 
Um, somebody tweeted and said to him, you can't use the word tribe. You're not a Native American or something. And he says, dude, the word tribe has been in the in English longer than people have been in North America. Or, <laughs> the English have been in North America, right? Tribe is not uh, local to North American Indians. And it's a good point. Um, and I was thinking, well, one of the ways people look at books now is they say, oh, it's just, it stars a a white uh, male protagonist, right? Always with a white male protagonist. If you attack this book that way, I'm like, I'm not sure he's white. If he's male, it's only in a very obtuse way. And he's not even human, practically. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Do we get a description of his skin color at all? I, I didn't remember. I don't recall one, I no. don't think... I mean, he has yeah. hair. I don't know if it's curly or... He or, doesn't have a lot of hair. No, just on his head, but... Yeah, I don't know if it's like long flowing, you know, yellow mane, or if it's a curly tight bun or whatever it is. Because honestly, this Man is bun. not a book about that, right? It's not about identity politics, unless it's just like identity of being a human or not. And even that, he doesn't seem to. I'm much more obsessed with whether the robots are humans, uh, or the humans are humans in this than he is, the author. Mm. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, neat. Like like uh, Olaf Stapleton, if you go the extra step and you go full Olaf Stapleton, how does how does his histories of you know the future histories have any bearing on 2017? And it's like they don't, right? It's very uh, whatever we've got going on is very provincial compared to what Olaf Stapleton is uh, is doing, and and this book doesn't it doesn't fit with 2017 at all. As far as I can tell, you know, sort of the attitudes and it's very yeah. uh, long. What's that group that want to build a, a clock that takes 10,000 years to to move an inch or something? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The Long Now Foundation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's not the same things, right? Just to right, try to right. drag things out at 10, 10 billion years into the future. So we, we, we think a little bit more about yeah. uh, long-term consequences. Yeah, uh, it is interesting the the tension between the technol technological and the biological, mm -hmm. you know, and that is prevalent in 2017 even more sure. than it was in the 50s. Sure. You know, everybody's concerned about that. Hey, uh, I typed in lists in Google, mm -hmm. and the first thing that came up uh, was a wiki of ice and fire. Oh, really? Hey, this is really cool. It says that lists is one of the free cities located off the coast of Essos in, ah. in uh, uh, George R. R. Martin's world there. Essos well, is, right. the, is the eastern continent. I hope that's where he got the name from, because it Should fits. Be. One of the free cities. Yep. Uh, there is a river in Belgium <laughs> called Lys. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it sounds like um, a little bit like Dis as well. Uh, and DIS, besides being, you know, D-I-S, D-Y-S, I think is, uh, isn't it God? I'm pretty sure there's a God named D-Y-S? Yeah, mm. and it's like an underworld God or something like that. Huh. Yeah, well, it, or, I, no, uh, DIS is actually a layer of hell. Yeah, that's right. That sounds right. Uh, Latin, maybe. In what, uh, oh, ancient Greek? Mm. No, no, in uh, in Dante, 
So it's it is from Latin. Is it so. D I S or D Y S? D I S. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and of course that's true, right? So we got the we've got we're, we spend so much time in diaspora, the heaven, right? Uh, where everybody's the same, <laughs> which uh, is not much of a diaspora, right? Which is the you know opposite of everybody being the same. And then you've got the um, the city of Dis, where everybody's the same. <laughs> <laughs> and so he has to leave both to try and I don't know make a story I don't know <laughs> I, I think it's yeah. well I think it's well placed mm-hmm. I, I I tried to find out if that remember I made a very slight allusion to it in the eighties everybody uh, not everybody I don't know they were making a big deal about this robot called Alvin you know the C submersible mm, yeah. Um, where they were looking for, I, I, I thought for some reason James Cameron was involved, but I don't think he was. Um, they were looking for uh, the Titanic, and they made this robot submersible that could go down looking for it and take pictures of it. And uh, it was called Alvin. I just, oh, it's got to be a connection, right? Like they, <laughs> now it turns out that the uh, guy who made it had a name that they contract, you know, contracted into Alvin. Uh. Uh, but it, it he does the same thing. He wanders the halls looking for um, hidden things, right? Places that no one else wants to go. Yeah. Right, right. We're losing Paul because he he's no. afraid of making his chair. No. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not losing present. me. I am pre- I am here in presence. Okay. I I, I have not delved into an alternate reality and I haven't gone outside the city. <laughs> He's playing one of the sagas. <laughs> I'm not, I'm we not all playing. are right now. Yep. <laughs> that's that's Skyrim. Yeah. You know what? That's pretty much it, right? Um, I absolutely content- love the very final paragraph. Oh, yeah? Read yeah. it for or me. The, fi- the final scene. Yeah, it was neat. And you got it there? Yeah, the, um, you know, so they're in orbit around it you know the ship was now above the pole right you remember that yeah. yeah the planet beneath beneath them was a perfect hemisphere looking down upon the belt of twilight jesserac and hilvar could see at one instant both sunrise and sunset on opposite sides of the world the symbolism was so perfect so striking that they were to remember this moment all their lives in this universe, the night was falling. The shadows were lengthening towards an east that would not know another dawn. But elsewhere, the stars were still young, and the light of morning lingered. And all along the path he had once followed, man would once would one day go again. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about Clark so much. You know, um, I, I've read him my entire reading life, and uh, it's that wonder... And the, the big idea is that he evokes the sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. I guess they call it nowadays, but um, yeah, he was the master of that. Well, he is he is Mr. Sense of Wonder in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, sorry, go for it, Paul. Yeah, and, and this novel is just full. I mean, he he gets a spaceship and he goes off into space and it's like, oh, there's seven strange stars arranged in a line. What does that mean? Let's go see what that constellation represents and just he keeps building 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 and then returns everything back to 
Earth. So there's a an ever expanding circle of of exploration and wonder. And then in the end, he returns to the city and returns to where he began because he says it's not for him to go exploring out among the stars. It's he he has plenty to do here. So it's almost like it's it's a I can see Jesse rolling his eyes now. It's a hero's journey. I, I'm not rolling that. I, I I don't know where you get the idea. I roll my eyes. I I want to see Zardoz. You made it sound awesome. <laughs> it's a hero's journey. We we leave the city. We go. It is a hero's journey. Hundred percent. I was saying that it, it is a saga. He's continuing the sagas that he was always frustrated it's, with. It's it's circular, and he returns back to where he started to Indeed. help re, help build rebuild the society that he himself has inexorably transformed. Yeah. How interesting. I um, I uh, was reading an old uh, Locus issue from 10 years ago. Uh, it was a Robert A. Heinlein centennial or something celebration issue. And it had a bunch of letters from li- then living, uh, I guess it's all living still, you know, Connie Willis and Larry Niven all sort of writing letters to Robert Heinlein saying how awesome you are. Um, and one of the pictures in there, in that magazine, was uh, Heinlein visiting uh, Arthur C. Clarke in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. Mm. And uh, I just thought this was interesting because, again, we're getting Scott back on the podcast more often than than uh, we had him in the past. And mm-hmm. uh, the time before, I think, that we had you on, Scott, was um, for the Stephen King, The Night Flyer. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, in in behind Heinlein, Virginia Heinlein, and uh, Clark was a Cessna Skymaster, that uh, oh. <laughs> uh, twin prop. Um, uh, the twin prop. Are you saying that Heinlein was a vampire? <laughs> Clark was amazing. <laughs> Clark was the vampire, and Heinlein was the vampire hunter. Uh, <laughs> no, I was just thinking like. Arthur C. Clarke is an incredibly weird guy, right? Yeah, he, he is, but yeah, I like I like his weirdness. I love his weirdness, um, yeah. but like the fact that, I mean, he's from England, right? He mm-hmm. He's living in England, he's reading weird books, um, he's obsessed with Olaf Stapleton and Lord Dunsany, and, and, uh, and then he writes his own stuff, and it's really good, and it, it's science fiction in a way that is accessible to tons of people, and then he sort of leaves the world. Right, he leaves any place that could really make him um, accessible to humans, right? And he goes to mm-hmm. Sri Lanka, which is literally like on the other side of the world, the opposite climate, and and just lives there forever. Yeah. And that yeah. is not a normal thing that most people do. And <laughs> and. I, I mean, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's remarkable. Um, and yet he managed to have a global influence. Um, yeah, and I understand that he was writing novels, um, you know, and, and sending them much like we do nowadays on the Internet mm-hmm. before the Internet existed, you know. So yep. we're talking about sending discs and everything, you know, in the mail back and forth but he was he was working remotely before you really could work remotely <laughs> think about how just like how amazing his his computer is in this and mm. how he anticipates not just storing you know 
and process not just processing you know a few data points but it's it's an intelligent machine it it stores massive amounts of data it can do massive numbers of calculations um, at the same time have many conversations with many people in the city right it's it's essentially like uh, a non-distributed Siri right mm-hmm. um, but smarter and it it, it also and it, not, it doesn't I mean it talked about the there's a we get a little bit about the government of Diaspar it's, it's pretty minimal they've got a council or something and then but that can be overridden and it's basically the computer runs the show right yeah, and yeah. that is uh, even if even if you take the uh, the later date, 1956, rather than 1948, um, he's doing stuff with computers that nobody's doing. Even uh, Isaac Asimov with his multi-vac stories, they seem um, kind of quaint. Compared a keyboard, to how quaint? Yes, yeah, like mm-hmm. the, the, I mean, I mean, he talks about the, I mean, my. Uh, my unhappiness about you know the laws of thermodynamics notwithstanding is like there's a there's not a lot of description or a lot of uh, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, amount of uh, oh look look at these circuits and look at those it's just described as what they do rather than how they do it so it makes it a little timeless we can imagine totally whatever timeless, we right? whatever we want as far as how the computer actually works and that's a lot of the technology in this in this novel it's just like oh yeah we've gone we gone past atomics and this and he doesn't describe what it is but it's it's the infinity plus one version of computers of power of of well, whatnot he he doesn't he he knows what computers are about right that's the thing is he knows what computers are about in a way that most people are not yet ready for um and and so he isn't thinking about circuits and tubes He's just thinking about what computers literally do, which is process information, information processing, storage, um, you know, multiple systems operating at the same time, all that, all that stuff. And then says, yeah, essentially we are kind of robot computers uh, with biological casings, right? And I think that it's it's sort of turning what turning what he knows can exist the physical human brain and saying well the operations that it does one way can be can be duplicated in a he doesn't even say silicon right could be a biological central computer in this thing he says circuits but you could describe synapses as circuits if you wanted i suppose right so he he's just got an incredibly advanced computer that doesn't seem to have aged very much in this i mean is there anything in this story that feels dated to you it really didn't to me yeah it, it was good it was like, good in i mean that they way. don't have cell phones but why do you need a cell phone the computer's everywhere well and, yeah, and, and they have they have numbers which they can call each other with but they don't need to have a a physical you know remote control that they carry around with them or anything yeah, they say call Jesse, and you're suddenly talking to Jesse. That's right, and, 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 and Jesse will answer, of course. Right? They, there's even <laughs> well, there's even the projection. They can uh, holographically project themselves anywhere in the city, right? So, they, you know, I don't want to line up for the theater. I'll just I'll just appear in the theater seat. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's too much. It's too much bother to get up and go. And, and their chairs are not squeaky. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry so much about your squeaky chair. We'll get you some WD-40 or you'll be all good. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I seriously, I do not think this book has aged very much at all, which is amazing given that it's so old. It's literally, what, 70, 70 no, 60, 60 years old at the earliest. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. agreed. 61? Yeah. And then if you go back even farther, it's almost 70 years old. 1948. Right. I, mean, I, I, mean the, I mean, for somebody who picks it up today for the first time, the ideas aren't new because we've seen these ideas again and again and again, but a lot... It's kind of like Olaf Stapleton. This is kind of like one of those urtexts of mm-hmm. ideas which other writers can, could and did steal and borrow and mm-hmm. were inspired by. So it's so it, it does. And while a lot of the later test, tests texts fail at is putting in too much detail, so that they do wind up getting aged out or the technology mm-hmm. seem seeming to be uh, outdated. Whereas here things are described so cleanly and so generically i would say that mm. we do, that yeah it's like how do the robots work how the computer actually is constructed where the power works it's not described it doesn't matter it's what the society and what these people do and how this guy moves through the world that counts and all that's the, the trappings around him are timeless they're i mean i'm not quite sure i understand quite how their genitals work it's like it, they don't. Society. They don't. Yeah, they don't at all. They don't right. at all. But the the list ones do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the people they, in he has a girlfriend, right? Normally, he has yeah, a girlfriend. He, has yeah, he a did girl- have a girlfriend. He yeah. has a girlfriend. It's funny that he didn't want to be in because he knew what his girl would want. So she's obviously more interested in sex than he is, which is, um, yeah. given given what I have heard and know about Arthur C. Clarke is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, so yeah, he's he's not he's he's much more interested in the fish in the sea and, and the ideas of you know what, what, what that it's just amazing. He he was a radar uh, operator in World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently one of the things he did was he he decided to uh, turn his his uh, radar equipment to the moon. And bounce some signals off the moon. It just, I just thinking about that during World War Two. There's this this radar operator. He says, "You know what? I'm I'm not super concerned about the uh, Nazi air, airplanes overhead. <laughs> I'm gonna turn. I'm much more interested in what this technology can do, right? And just like, wow, I can I can send a signal to the moon and see how long it takes to bounce back. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Just to think about and it's like. Yeah. If he was if he wasn't there if he was in you know Alan Turing's department working on the computer there, um, it would have been very similar. Is you know, why why are we worrying about these 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 uh, breaking these Nazi codes? We've got a we've got a potential um, artificial intelligence here. Let's work on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Much more uh, a distant, and you can see why he loves um, Olaf Staples. Olaf Stapleton so much because it's 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 basically the same thing, right? Yeah. Almost no characters. Plot, there's a plot here, unlike in Olaf Stapleton stuff. 
Um, but I, I I could take or leave the plot. I mean, it's 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 symmetrical. I like that. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, man, it's so good. Full of ideas. Full of ideas. Yeah. You know, I have. Uh, I'm looking through it right now. I have the collected stories of Arthur C. Clarke on audio, mm-hmm. which is five volumes, and I, I don't see Against the Fall of Night in there. So um, it's a no, it's a novella, so it's quite long. Yeah, so it was a novella at even at the beginning. Okay. Sixty-two pages in in the right. PDF I've got. I don't know that I'll have that, but every now and then I, I put some of these in and listen to them, and they're just they're all just so good. It's true. You know? And uh, being far away from um, uh, North America, he didn't get a lot of copyrights uh, in that he probably could have. So there's a lot of his stuff is is public domain. Not not this novel, unfortunately, but the original Against the Fall of Night is. And uh, you know, so many of his classics short stories are, including um, the uh, the main ones everybody thinks of, Nine Billion Names of God, The Star. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, some of the, you know, the Sentinel. I don't know if that's that uh, might be under copyright. Uh, I'll check on that one. I don't know. I haven't, yeah. I, haven't I, I went through and I found a whole bunch and uh, I I keep finding ways to figure out how, how we can get more into the public domain. It's so cool that I can just yeah. print it up and share it with a student. And uh, I think that, you know, everyone should read more Arthur C. Clarke. Agreed. He's Except for good. that later stuff where, you know, he's collaborating with six <laughs> other Gregory Benfords and things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need the sequels. I don't need the 4001, a, a continuing of the Odyssey that was probably best left in the drawer. <laughs> How about Rama, Rama 2? No, no. Three? I was I read, even a I fan read, of Rama 1. I, 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 yeah. read, I read those sequels. Those sequels charitably are not the strongest works that no. Clark have, has ever <laughs> done in collaboration or otherwise. Uncharitably, I was not impressed. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but I liked Rama, Rendezvous with Rama. I enjoyed it. It was, uh, you know, it just, has, just them walking around and, and looking at stuff, really. And, but and it was, it's a great ending yeah. line, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, it sparked the sequels, but... You can just end it with that line and let the imagination take over. The Ramas do everything in threes. And it was like and, that for years and years. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, God, they're going to come back. And then they come back and it's, yeah, shite. And they cut it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this novel, and, and again, I mean, going back to whole sequels and whatnot, I mean, Gregory Benford's Beyond the Fall of Night is not as good as the original and it's not as good as this. And I do not recommend you read it. I, I, I have issues with Gregory Benford on a number of levels, which is sad, but yeah, don't, don't go, go, go looking for that sequel again, just stick to the originals and be happy. I think there was something in here about, uh, maybe it was in one of the introductions saying about how the black sun was, um, is that, is that predate, uh, Black holes? No, it doesn't predate black holes. I mean, it's an idea that's been floating around, been floating around for quite a while. The idea of a sun so powerful that, it, I mean, it was black holes have been hypo- or hypothesized before here, and there's there were a couple of science fiction works this early that I think uh, even um, what's his name? Um, not uh, the 
I, th- I think E. Doc Smith had them, so mm. yeah, he's a, not the first. He's not the first time person to actually use black holes. Yeah, it a, says uh, objects whose gravitational fields are too strong to for light to escape were first considered in the 18th century by Jean John Mitchell and Pierre Simon Laplace. The first modern solution of general relativity to characterize a black hole was in 1916, and then. Uh, something in 1958. So, yeah, obviously, uh, sort of existed prior to that. But the the way um, he's got the mad mind trapped in there, and uh, I oh maybe I know what it was. It was something about I think uh, it was Clark saying that until um, who's the who's the guy in the wheelchair, the physicist, astrophysicist, Hawking. Hawking, right? Until Hawking uh, thought about how um, black holes could evaporate. Uh, the way he's got it, the system going in uh, in this couldn't have happened, right? The uh, mad mind escaping at the end. Uh, it's not really important. Important part is this is a good book, <laughs> really good <laughs> book. Uh, what did you guys think of the audiobook? Did you guys read the audiobook that I sent you? I no, I read the ebook. Okay, Paul. I did. I, I think it was, I think it was a decent narration. Not um, may, maybe a touch stilted. I I don't know if there's another version I could have listened there to are, instead. There are other versions, but you do not want to listen to them. Although they're not they're not even as good as this. Oh. That's well, uh, okay. So there is one on Audible, and for some st- stupid reason, they decided to put music under all of the book. Makes no sense. Oh man, that uh, drives really me insane. Oh god, I want to yeah. kick that person's ass. Anyways, <laughs> um, there is also nicely um, somebody has put the book for the blind version up um, on YouTube, and that has introductions that um, that uh, this one did not. This one is was incredibly obscure. I didn't know about this book, or I didn't know about Arthur C. Clarke's City in the Stars until I found this audiobook. Uh, it's from North Star Publishing. Um, and I bought it used from a audiobook store in the states that rented books, you know. Back I could the- I, could, I could tell because I could hear about the uh, change size yeah, or exactly. B. Yeah, and so it was it was like uh, you know Blockbuster used to be a thing. I guess it still is going in Alaska, but where <laughs> you go in and rent it. The- there was uh, briefly before Audible, um, and as audiobooks are ramping up, there were. Stores where you could go in and rent audiobooks um, in the yeah, same they, way. That yeah, you they're basically for truckers. Yeah, they I mean, were. I, I mean, that's what yeah, they tr- were tr- saying. Truckers, yeah, truckers were the original users of audiobooks for you know something to listen to on long haul drives. That, that's well, that, they were the hyper consumer, right? And they were the target audience. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is that was that was like an assumption that people. Uh, had and of course it was 100% true. You know, you're on the road that long, you want to have an audiobook, 100%. But um, in the early, uh, I was just reading about this in the early 20th century, um, they thought women were the ones who made all the magazine buying decisions, and so they had an inordinate number of romance stories. Um, and they would they they had a theory that. Um, Women made because women made all the magazine purchasing decisions for some reason for the household. Um, any story that had a major role for a woman in it was acceptable, except for science fiction, right? So w- they thought women wouldn't buy science fiction stuff, 
And so there was a kind of suppression of science fiction and, and like because they would pop these sort of science fiction stories into mainstream fiction magazines and they just couldn't sell them. Uh, the authors who were writing them couldn't find markets because there was a theory that people, all purchasing decisions for magazines were made by the domestic part of the home because I guess they're passed around or something and they're shop, you know, they're shopping. But turns out that it was it was commuters and just everybody who loved reading fiction magazines. And so when uh, uh, Hugo Gernsback put out his uh, first issue of Amazing, and it did amazingly, uh, the theory was sort of broken, and that's why you sudden, suddenly get a huge flurry of, of uh, other magazines just pouring out non- stories that aren't westerns and that aren't railroad romances and anything with a with a woman character in it, it is because women want to read about science fiction too and it's not their theories were wrong and so when when they were marketing audiobooks they were always pushing it to truckers and i'm like me in the 80s and 90s i'm like i'm not a trucker <laughs> You know, I barely drive at all, and I love these things, these audiobooks. How, how did you get into audiobooks, Jesse? Uh, basically, I, I, uh, I walk a lot, and uh, it's really boring, and, I, and I'm and i weird guy. I don't like music, right? Like, everybody's listening to music, and I have to walk a long way home from school. And it's not like everybody's walking with me. Mm-hmm. So I want to have something to listen to, and audio... You know, I, I guess everybody... Uh, Scott probably did it, and you too, Paul. Uh, everybody our age loved Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The Absolutely. Audio, mm-hmm. audio uh, cassette, mm-hmm. right? Everybody had that. And it's only two cassettes. You can't you can't listen to that 5,000 times in a row and not start to say, well, maybe there's something else out there, right? And so, yeah, I was buying all the abridged audiobooks that were being manufactured in the 80s, the two cassette abridgments of what should be 14 cassette or 9 cassette or 6 cassette books. And uh, then you find out about uh, the books for the blind. Again, <laughs> this whole idea that blind people are the only ones who are interested in books for the blind. You know how much time I spent trying to convince the librarians that my mom needed audiobooks and <laughs> she was uh, having deficiency uh, seeing um, <laughs> You lied, Jesse? No, you I lied? just said, Mom, you need glasses, right? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yep, wow. yep. Mm. So I spent a hell of a long time trying to get audio books, um, you know, and unabridged ones. And, and they were so expensive. So um, I got this one. And when I found out about it, it, I'd never seen The City and the Stars as a paperback. I read tons of paperbacks. But if you don't see them on the shelf, you can't buy them back then, right? There was no internet to look things up. And. You know, if the book is yeah. not available, you can't buy it. So when I got this book, I was like, this book is amazing. It blew me away. And it was, uh, yeah, it's totally out of print. Nobody can get this book. Um, I thought it was pretty good on uh, narration, even though, yeah, it's, you listen to the listen to the hum on that one. That's a deep <laughs> cassette hum. Yeah. I, I didn't listen to a real audiobook. You know, I checked Sky to the Galaxy and stuff like that, notwithstanding until 2005. Hmm. And that was because I went with my friends on a driving trip to Yellowstone and Grand Teton and eventually back 
via the Badlands and Mount Rushmore. And they thought that listening to audiobooks on long drives of 10, 12 hours a day was the right and logical thing to do. And I, by this time it was on CDs, not on cassettes. And I, and I thought, and I was listening like, this is a great idea. It is a and great then, idea. And I went on more camping trips with them. hundred percent. As soon as I was driving around, I was, I was wearing out my cassette deck. Right. hundred mm-hmm. percent. And the thing is, is uh, Scott and I, when we started, SFF Audio, which is uh, in 2003, um, it's 15, uh, 14 years ago. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, yeah. Audible was around, but it was new, right? It, they just celebrated their 20th anniversary or something. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I remember yeah. they had the Audible Otis. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I had that. I, I, I was processing the other day. I have some cassettes that I, because I didn't have an Otis and there was no iPods, I would download the audiobook from Audible and then transfer it to cassette so I could take it out. Wow. That I was, was probably using quite a CDs. job. Yeah. Mm. A hell of a goddamn process to get a couple of audiobooks. You know, take them with me, right? And it's like, wow, that's amazing. Um, and now, um, and I think you, you and I, Scott, we oversaw the explosion that was audiobooks. Um, mm. Watched it happen, and they went from this curiosity... On the outside, the periphery, where Unabridged was... We, I mean, that's why the reviews still say Unabridged on them, right? Yeah. Now there's nothing that isn't Unabridged. But when we started, almost everything was abridged, and it, the exception was the Unabridged. And now, audiobooks have gone from sort of this obtuse thing that only, quote-unquote, truckers listen to, <laughs> to a really a mainstream. I, I asked... Um, uh, an author whose book is coming out in ebook very shortly. Uh, is there an audiobook? And he said, Yeah. Right? It's yeah. everybody's mm-hmm. getting audiobooks made for their stuff because honestly, I think there's more people listening to books than there are reading books now. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. That's possible. Well, um, the thing is, is yeah. think about it, Scott. Um, one of the reasons a lot of people don't read books is because they. They don't have that time. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. To sit I'm down, you. like you, you sat down and read an ebook. Where, the f- where do you get that time? <laughs> 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 I yeah. don't have time to sit down and read ebooks. I'm busy making ebooks. I have no time to read them. <laughs> All I can do is listen to them while I'm making ebooks. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Do you remember the cassettes, the book cassettes that were you'd play through twice, once sure. on the left I've speaker one and once here. on the right? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know how to I don't know how to digitally convert it. I'm gonna have to. Those were probably the first unabridged books that I listened to. Were from that company. It's from Brilliance. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's still around. It's now owned by Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, that really, her, really annoying system. You know why they did that, Paul? Oh, why? Because apparently cassettes were expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so they take a, a ten-hour book and they double they double the size of the cassettes by having each channel be pl- each channel having one track. So your left speaker, right, would play one track, and then you you I don't know fast forward to the end, and then you switch over to your right speaker. So it's like what a stupid system, right? But they came up with it, and eventually, near the end, before everything became 
virtually digital, which not everything is. There's still some CDs lying around for some reason. God only knows why. Um, they they were releasing like 40 CD audiobooks, right? Mm, Ridiculous yeah. number of CDs. <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah, like some of those books that we listened to on our driving tips was like huge numbers of CDs because they were 600 page books. So it's like, yeah, it's a lot of CDs to get through. It is. And it, it, it was like a, it was a substantial thing. If it fell off the table and hit your foot, you'd, it would hurt. <laughs> and Blackstone used to rent through the mail. They actually still do rentals uh, on down. Do they? Do wow. You know I didn't know that. that. It's huh. a really strange idea, but <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I remember getting Dune. I remember getting Dune in the mail, um, and it was like you would order half of it, (laughs) and it would come in, you know, on cassettes, and then you'd listen to those cassettes, and you'd put them back in the box and return it. Books on tape, and then they'd mail you the next one. Yep, books on tape. It was basically Audible by mail or Netflix, right? By mail. Yeah. Um, Audible, Blackstone, uh, and Blackstone recorded books and books on tape all had a rental systems in, in place but blackstone that's one thing they have that uh audible doesn't have on downpour is so you can buy the book for a certain price or you can rent the book for a certain price <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, like i think that's brilliant because the rental um is cheaper than the buying but it has the same experience pretty much um and and so they have a slight competitive advantage the Audible, you know, you bought it, you you loved it, you're never going to read it again, it's going to sit in your digital account forever until <laughs> you lose track of your password. Right. <laughs> right. It's not really right. the same, like, when I bought a book from Blackstone or Books on Tape, I physically had that book on my shelf, and I'm I'm still dealing with getting rid of some of them, right? Mm. Yeah. I, I guess we wandered a little bit away from the book near the end here, but... <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Did you see uh, Brian Alexander just uh, tweeted, Sunday mornings just aren't the same without SFF audio recording. Aw. Aw. Oh, we missed him. Get him, get him back been, on. You've been great. Yeah. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. I have um, finished the book. <laughs> you guys ready? <laughs> sure. All right. I got a recording going. Whoa! There's a on, on the uh, on the thing. It says Marissa question mark. Did she? She, did she bowed out. She um, okay. Uh, long, I just wanted to make sure she wasn't forgotten. That's she all. She has a dentist appointment. Um, a dentist. I yes. wanted to be not, a dentist. Not just a cleaning. <laughs> I have a cleaning on Tuesday. Fantastic. Hopefully, it's just a cleaning. <clears throat> and they said it's not a big deal. It's not uh-huh. a big deal. Don't worry, it's not a big deal. But your regular person, Lisa, is not going to be there. I'm like, shit. Now I'm worried. <laughs> I probably wouldn't even noticed before. <laughs> Does everybody request Lisa? Uh-huh. I think I probably have had her cleaning my teeth for about 20 years and just no. never, never thought about it. But they all know my name there, and I don't know anybody's name. The dentist. Yeah. Because he has an awesome name. His name is Dr. Chu. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe we can get you a robotic uh, teeth cleaner. Yeah. Oh, 
then it'll always be the same, right? Yeah, uh, or one that can go into the machine and come back out or whatever. That's right. All right. Um, is there a definitive uh, Goodreads page for um, this book? Because it's got some I did not versions. look for one. I'm just yeah. worried. worried. Lots of versions. That. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah, let's talk about during that that during the podcast too because I'm a little unclear. Uh, anyway, I'll talk mm-hmm. about that. When we mm-hmm. get there. Did you guys maybe, see? Maybe the, one of you guys knows. Did you see the uh, uh, pictures of the against the fall of night I put up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Nice. Really good. All right. I think I'm ready. You guys ready? Ready. Paul. Have we lost Paul? He's no, I, oh, he's oiling his chair. <laughs> no, I had muted my microphone. Oil can to reduce oil can external noise. Have you got oh, a Have you got a kitchen chair you can swap in? It's not very comfortable. Okay, but I I will just mute my microphone and. Well, that doesn't always work the best, but. Whoops! Whoops! Um, I dropped my uh, oil. Remain as Look slow as it. possible. WD forty. <laughs> how about How about WD forty? You got some WD forty? Mm, yes, maybe somewhere. Okay, <laughs> doesn't sound enthusiastic. Okay, well we'll we'll suffer through. Uh, a, a fourth, It'll be great. A fourth voice, uh, occasionally chiming in. Get it? Chiming. Chiming. No. Oh man. <laughs> I haven't I haven't heard much of it today. Just a little bit. Maybe he's, he's muted. Maybe that's why. Don't wreck the podcast over it, Paul. Fuck. He's gone. <laughs> I'm here. Oh, all is no. well. No, all is well. I'm just remaining as still and quiet as possible. <laughs> no sudden moves. <laughs> all right, I'm ready. You guys ready? Ready. Yes. Paul's chair ready? Ready. <laughs> here we go. Oh wait, I'm not ready. <laughs> here we almost go. Uh, what's it, uh, the city and the stars I forgot that part stars okay that's good and then I'll, I'll bring up the page and that'll make things a little easier too hey uh, Scott I haven't read your review of that uh, audio drama but the um, uh, graphics are awesome on it yeah isn't it nice really pretty yeah it's very pro it's really good I really liked it nice uh and apparently yesterday there was a deal on um, Audible for a free copy of uh, uh, what was it? The uh, Richard Matheson book, I Am Legend. Oh, I Am Legend, yeah. Yeah. I've already got that one, but yeah, I've been all over that. Yeah. Um, and it only was like on until noon or something, but hmm. it's a good good audiobook. Yeah, there it is. All right. Okay, dokey. I'm ready. Here we go. Pretty sure I'm ready. Yeah. (laughs) Here we go.